Romans 8, verses 3 through 9. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Father in heaven, those are sobering words, and we tremble before them. If Christ is not in you, you do not belong to Christ. The mark of those who are Christians are not something they've said or decided in the past, but the habitation in their lives of the risen Christ. By his spirit, writing the law on their heart, leading them to walk by the spirit. So, Lord, I pray for those who are without Christ this morning, that before this hour is over, they would have received Christ by faith, and that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, and they would be rooted and grounded in love, and have power with all the saints to comprehend the height and depth and length and breadth, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, and be filled with all the fullness of God. So I ask you, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, living Christ, not to leave me now to my own mind or resources or language, but to sustain me, carry me, and anoint me, and empower me, and humble me, and embolden me, that I might be faithful to your word and that the effect of it would be salvation and strength and the transformation of your people into Christ-like lovers of others. So come now, guard us from the evil one, help us to listen and help us to speak. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we ended last week here in verse 3 and 4 of Romans 8. Having seen that uh, there are two very deep problems that every one of us has. And they're deeper than financial problems and deeper than relational problems and deeper than health problems. And the first one is that we are under the condemnation of a holy God. And the second one is that we are rebellious, that we love 
the gifts of God more than we love God. We prefer what he has made over him. And we are sick in our souls, prone to wander. And we said last week that the remedy to the first problem is not the law. Because in a courtroom, if the verdict is guilty, because of you having committed a capital crime, doesn't matter how many laws you start keeping now, you're guilty, you're going to the chair. Law keeping will not change your verdict. Only one thing can change your verdict. God reversing the verdict, declaring not guilty on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, who was condemned in your place, according to verse 3 of Romans 8. And then at the end of the sermon, I said, I also want to make the case that there's another thing the law cannot do. Not only can it not justify you, it can't sanctify you. And I ended by saying, we live in a very difficult, trembling, shaking, insecure, angry world. And the Christian church is called to return good for evil and to love our enemies and to be patient and kind and have emotional resources for strong, bold, self-sacrificing action. Where are you going to get the emotional resources to rise to that when by nature we are all selfish? We're all comfort-loving, security-loving, pleasure-seeking people who want to be praised more than we want to lay our lives down for anybody. Where are you going to get it? You're going to turn to the law? And that's where we ended. So now today we pick it up to talk about why... The law cannot sanctify. Why can't the law sanctify? Reason number one. I have three reasons. The first one, I'll just pass over very quickly because we've said it already. The grand foundation for sanctification is justification. You can't even get to first base in becoming a holy person until the wrath of God against you is removed and condemnation has become acquittal. And since the law cannot provide that justification, the law can't move you into sanctification. If it can't get you to first base in justification, it can't get you beyond that. So, so, so the question is this. If you're justified this morning by faith alone, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've received him as the Savior and Lord and treasure of your life, and your verdict has been changed, and God says not guilty over your life, accepted, received, righteous in Christ. If that's your standing this morning, the question is, in order for you now to become the kind of person that you want to become, since God justifies the ungodly, 
And now you begin a lifelong process of being shaped into the image of Jesus. So you become a loving person. Does God, now that you're justified by faith alone, send you back to the law to get sanctified? And I'm answering, no, he doesn't. And there are three reasons. The first one is that we can't even get to first base in justification with the help of the law. And therefore, we can't move into sanctification. But here are the two that I want to linger over. Number two. The reason the law cannot sanctify us is because it cannot overcome our rebellion and our treasonous preference for God's creation over God. Everybody in this room is corrupt. We are fallen. <laughs> I got up at uh, 4.30 this morning. Went in the bathroom to brush my teeth and flicked on the radio. I hate the little transistor radio in the bathroom. Well, at 4.30 in the morning, what you get is London on NPR. So it's broad daylight in London. There's a conversation going on on war. Scholar from King's College and a woman who'd written a book on gratuitous killing and somebody else. They're having this conversation about war. The last, just before they went off, the last question by the commentator was, um, what can we do? What are the prospects so there'll be no more war? And they each gave their comments. Not one of them address the issue of the human heart. Talk, better communication was the first one. We need better communication between nations. And the next guy said, better balance of power. And I forget what the third man said. I just stood there, brushing my teeth. <gasps> I'm choking. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You think any of these treaties will be kept? You think anybody gives a hoot about balance of power? You think anybody cares about communication? If they want what they want, they're going to get what they get, American or whatever else. It's the heart. It's the heart that is so corrupt, in love with power, in love with money, in love with illicit pleasures of all kinds. Whence come wars among you, James said? Is it not from your passions? Where are you going to turn to have your heart revolutionized? Law? A list? It isn't going to happen. The law is powerless to take away your rebellion. The law is powerless to take away your treasonous preference for things over God. In fact... Let's say it the way Paul really says it. If you go to the law as a rebel, as a fallen, corrupt traitor against God, you know what you'll do? You will make the law a new theater for revolt. 
Now let's see this. You need, we need to erect some barriers between us, and I'm talking us Christians now, barriers between us justified sinners and running to the law as the first or chief or decisive instrument of our sanctification. Don't do that. So let's erect some of those barriers by looking at the way Paul spoke of the law in relation to our fallenness. If you want to go with me, you can turn to chapter 5, back to chapter 5 of Romans, verse 19. I'm trying to memorize big hunks of Romans these days, and this is the hardest section of all for me to memorize, verses 12 to 21, and so I was running on my treadmill yesterday morning with my big print sheet of Romans lying on the computer beside me as I'm running, trying to memorize this extremely complex passage and lingering over verses 19 to 21, pondering my sermon this morning. That's where this point comes. This is a treadmill point. Verse 19, for as though, as through one man's, that's Adam's, Disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, many will be made righteous. Now pause right there before we read the key verse. And let that sink in and what problem it creates for a typical Jewish listener or a typical religious American listener. It says, as in Adam... Everybody was counted sinner and came under condemnation. So through the obedience of one man, many will be constituted righteous. Well, then, if Christ's obedience becomes the obedience I need to be accepted with God, which it does, that's the meaning of justification. And the law presumably is given to help me perform my acts of obedience. And he already did that for me. Why the law? And that's exactly the question in Paul's head when he says the next sentence. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Wow. That's not what we expected. Why the holy, just, pure, good, Ten Commandments, Book of the Covenant, Holiness Code, Priestly service, stipulations all around, everywhere, covering this tabernacle. Why, Sinai? To increase trespasses. That's God's purpose for the law. To move into the hearts of rebellious people and turn rebellion into many transgressions. Let's see it again, verse 5 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 5. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, 
we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So the function of the law, the purpose of the law, the effect of the law is rousing sinful passions, not subduing sinful passions. You go to the law to get your sinful passions fixed. It will work. It won't work. The law stirs sinful passions. Now, that's not easy to grasp for some people of how a worldly rebel met by the law can become a religious rebel. But if you spend an hour thinking about it, you begin to see. If you've got a rebellious heart, if you don't want to be subordinate to anybody, and yet you get a little bit of scared of hell and a little bit scared of God zapping you. You can translate your rebellion into some pretty good law keeping. It's called Phariseeism. And I'm still independent. I'm still in control. I'm still going to make something of myself so that I can win some approval for my religious performances this time. If not for my lechery like I used to get. You think about it, the law does not solve the rebellion problem. It provides a new theater for revolt. See it again in verse 8 of chapter 7. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, notice that, here comes the commandment. What does the commandment do? It gets sucked right into the enemy camp. Sin, taking opportunity in the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. You're a covetous person. Here comes a law. Don't do that. Don't feel that. Don't want those things. Does that fix you? That doesn't fix you. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, never made anybody a non-covetous person. Law can't change your heart. It can name it. It can condemn it. It can't change it. You turn to the law to get your covetousness fixed, you will become a religious coveter. You know what the main thing you'll covet is? The approval of religious people. Looking good. Tithe, read your Bible, go to church, and make much of me. Because you're still at root a coveter. I gotta have, I gotta have. Not, I wanna know him, I wanna love him. Look at verse 13, chapter 7. Therefore, did that which is good become the cause of death to me? That is the law. Answer, may it never be. It was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin, here's the purpose of the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, effecting my death through that which is good, namely the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So now I've seen three things that the law does when it meets us as rebels. One. It makes our rebellion more visible as transgressions. 
Two, it makes our rebellion and sin more blatant and prevalent by stirring them up and rousing them up. Not just making them more visible, but more prevalent. And third, it makes sin appear more manifestly vicious because it uses innocent good things to get its dirty, ugly work done. That's what the law does for us as rebels. If you turn to the law to get your heart changed, it won't work. It will make you worse. Galatians chapter 3. Underline it from another place. In verse 18, Paul is comparing and contrasting the inheritance of life promised to Abraham by faith with the law that came 430 years later. What's the relationship between these two? The Sinai covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That is really important. God Boxed in Israel and the world with the law until the one who would purchase for us the inheritance would come so that the inheritance, as he said to Abraham, would be by faith in him. And he would be the clear honor when we receive the inheritance. Now, let me go back to chapter 5 with you for a minute and ask this. I'm not satisfied with this answer. This is a very emotionally unsatisfying answer to why the law. To make everybody miserable and to make everything worse and to multiply transgressions and to make sin look horrible and ugly. Okay, okay, okay. Is that it? Now we're ready for the rest of verse 20. In Romans 5. No, that's not it. That's all foundation. That's all laying a groundwork for the big purpose of God. Romans 5.20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Then immediately he tells what he's up to. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The increase of trespass is not an end in itself. It is setting the stage for abundant grace. God's purpose is to lavish grace upon grace upon grace in the history of redemption. In fact, right here, as we move into verse 21 of chapter 5, we see the ultimate, real, final purpose of law and grace. And here they are. Verse 21. So that... All this grace is going to abound over that sin so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the end. There's the end. Through Christ. Through Christ. 
The telos, the end, the goal of the law is Christ for righteousness to all who believe. Everything is tending to Christ. Abraham was tending to Christ. Law is tending to Christ. Everything is moving redemptive history to Christ so that we would not be justified or sanctified apart from the power and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's to get the glory in all of this. Which brings me now to my third reason for why the law can't sanctify. Reason number one was that the ground of sanctification is justification and the law can't do that and so it can't even get to, to first base in sanctification. Reason number two is that it can't change a rebel heart. It can't do anything with our corruption. It meets our corruption. It names our corruption. It stirs up our corruption. It multiplies our corruption and it doesn't heal our corruption. That's number two. Number three... Reason number three for why the law cannot sanctify is this. If it did, Christ wouldn't get the glory. And God means for Christ to get the glory. I mean, suppose you succeeded in large measure. What would your name be? Pharisee. You take the law as a list of commandments and say, I can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to perform this. I'm going to show that when I go up to the temple and stand and pray, I won't be like that guy who beat on his chest and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and happened to go down to his house justified. I'm going to say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. I, I fast and I, I don't commit adultery. I succeed with the law. And he did, in large measure. So you can try to go to the law to get your life fixed, and you can clean it up. Believe me, there are a lot of Americans with cleaned up lives going straight to hell, riding in the law basket. Thinking they're pretty good people. At least better than the next guy. It'll get you nowhere. Just produces Phariseeism. It won't get any glory for Jesus. Jesus sure didn't get any glory when that guy was touting his own accomplishments standing in the temple. The other man said, mercy, like the thief on the cross. Jesus, Jesus, if there's any hope for me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And when Jesus said, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus got the glory. What a king. He dies. In three hours he'll be in paradise. In six hours the thief will be with him. That's glory. Who is the spirit in verse 4? Who accomplishes this? If the law is not the place where you go to as the first and chief and decisive means of sanctification, where do you go? Answer, you go to Christ. But now look at verse 4 in Romans 8. God condemns sin in the flesh, end of verse 3. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled 
In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now in the weeks to come, I'm going to argue that the just requirement of the law, mentioned there in the first part of verse 4, is a life of love. And I'm going to base it on Romans 13, 8, Galatians 5, 14, Matthew 7, where Jesus and Paul both say, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law. A life of love fulfills the law. This is what the law is after in your behavior. And now I'm telling you, if you want to become a loving person, die to the law that you may fulfill the law. Die to the law. Don't turn to the law first, chiefly, decisively, as the instrument whereby your corruption can be made into holiness and loving humility. Turn to Jesus. Welcome Jesus into your life. See Jesus, savor Jesus above all competitors and you will be changed. But not by the law. So in verse 4, how is it described? How is this change described? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus is not mentioned in that verse. Who is this Spirit? Who is this? What is this? Look at verse 9. The answer is given, powerfully given. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, did you see those three names for this spirit? If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, such the spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. But if anyone does not have the spirit of, you expect him to say God again. He doesn't say God again. He says Christ this time, the spirit of Christ. So it's the spirit of Christ who dwells in us. And he doesn't even stop there. He says, but if Christ is in you. So he just says Christ, not even spirit of Christ, which is why I feel justified now to go back to verse four when it says, if you walk according to the spirit, you will become a loving person. Turn away from the law and its lists. Turn to Jesus Christ as your all-satisfying treasure, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, Christ. He will move into your life as you trust Him, lean on Him, cherish Him, value Him. And as that moving, treasured Christ comes into you, your heart will be changed. And from the inside out, you will begin to Love what he loves. That's what it means when it says he will put the spirit within you and write the law on your heart. You'll love him. 
and delight in Him and all that He delights in and hate everything He hates, your heart will be changed. Oh, how many Christians there are who are just doing external stuff with lists. Lists of doctrines and lists of do's and don'ts. Thinking that's Christianity and will commend them to God. It won't. Trust in Jesus. Treasuring Jesus. Resting in Jesus. Delighting in Jesus. Valuing Jesus. Hoping in Jesus. Enjoying Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Will. Turn away from the lists to the person behind the lists. Go through the lists quickly to the person. Just a concluding confirmation of this in chapter 7, verses 4 and 6. The confirmation, that is, of Jesus being the Spirit and union with Jesus being the same as walking according to the Spirit. Romans 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Notice that. You died to the law. So that you might be joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead. That's Jesus. Alive, now in heaven, reigning and coming by his Spirit. Why? In order that we might bear fruit... For God, and that's love, that's the fulfillment of the law. Die to the law, step one, that you may be united to the living Christ in a love and all-satisfying relationship with the living Christ so that you might bear fruit for God and thus fulfill the law that you died to. You got to go at the house of love, not through the front door of the commandments, but through the back door of the spirit. You walk up to that door, got a long list of stuff you got to do to get in that door, and you drop dead. The law came and I died. Jesus picks you up. As he walks you around to the back door, you trust in his arms. You rest in him. You look up into his face and you see an all-satisfying provider. And he busts the back door off the life of love and carries you right into the parlor room and spends a lifetime making you a loving person. You'll never get through the front door of the law. It will not produce it. It will only make you a rebel if it doesn't kill you and get you in the arms of Jesus. You've got to become a child if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, not a self-sufficient adult lawkeeper. Verse 6, to show the connection with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now, we have been released from the law. Same point as verse 4. Released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that... We serve, yes, we serve, oh, we serve, in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. You see the parallels with verse 4? And what's crucial is that you see that the Spirit in Christ, the risen Christ, is the one you're united to in verse 4, and the Spirit is the one who is enabling you to serve 
in verse 6. And that's the same thing we saw when we compared verse 4 of chapter 8 with verse 9 of chapter 8. Namely, that the Spirit by whom we walk in chapter 8, verse 4, is the Christ who indwells us in chapter 8, verse 10. Now, let me close with this. This third point is, you can't be sanctified by the law because God's purpose in your sanctification is that Jesus Christ get the glory, the credit, the honor. So when you become a loving person, people praise Jesus, not you. Which means... You gotta turn away from the law to this Jesus. You gotta be ravished by Jesus. You gotta set your gaze on Jesus. You need to savor Jesus. You need to be caught up into Jesus as the one who outstrips all other pleasures in life and endears you to himself so much that they become rubbish. Then he'll get the glory. And just to underline the fact that this is Paul's purpose, In sanctification, let me read one more verse to you. Chapter 15, verse 18. You'll see the jealousy of the Apostle Paul for the glory of Jesus here in sanctification. Paul says in 15, 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. So where does our obedience come from? Paul says, if I were to take on my lips a description of where your obedience came from, I would not dare to speak of anything except what Christ did for you in history and in you by His Spirit so that He gets the glory for your justification and He gets the glory for your sanctification. He gets the glory because He provided obedience for you that made you acceptable to God and standing on that, He is working an obedience in you that reflects the character of Christ. Therefore, let Christ be glorified. Let Christ be honored. And the reason this is so important is because if you pursue your triumph over rebellion... By going to the law as your first and chief and decisive instrument to get yourself fixed, you will not get transformation and Jesus will not get exaltation. If you want him to get glorification and you to get transformation, you turn away from law and you turn to him and you make him the treasure of your life. Sometimes people ask me, you read your own books? And I say, no, not, not usually, but there is one. There is one. Seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. There's a reason. The hardest thing in my life is not to articulate Christian hedonism. I can articulate the dynamics of Christian hedonism at the drop of a hat. The hardest thing in my life is to see Jesus. To see Him. 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 Not sentences about Him merely. But Him. 
And I wrote that book out of the burden of these last several years of my life. I want to see him. I want to savor him. Because if I see him, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, I am changed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of the one I see and I savor. That's the dynamic of sanctification. That's the process of holiness. That's what will get you changed and him glorified. And I welcome you to join me in the quest to get to Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus. Don't get stalled at the law. What about, boom, all kinds of texts that come to people's mind about the law. In two weeks, I'm coming back here with a message from 1 Timothy. Rooted here in this chapter, I'll entitle it, The Lawful Use of the Law. So if you wondered whether you should read the first half of your Bible or not, come and find out. But now let's close like this. There are people in this room right now who are Christians trembling that you don't know what I'm talking about. Seeing and savoring, you don't even, I mean, it's not even part of your framework to see Jesus, to savor Jesus spiritually, and to be changed by that dynamic. How do you pray right now? And there are unbelievers in the room right now who came in. And maybe I do pray this. God has quickened and awakened a longing and a desire to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to see Him in and through His Word in such a way that we are drawn to Him, saved by Him, justified by Him, and sanctified by Him. How do you pray right now? So I'm going to close by praying a prayer that I wrote down for myself. This is my prayer Because I think the believer and unbeliever pray the same prayer at this point. So would you bow with me? And if what you hear coming out of my mouth is what your heart is saying, then just say it with me in your own mind. And we'll close with this. O Lord Jesus, I am by nature a rebel and find more pleasure in what you made than in you. I am sick and corrupt. O Christ, how plain it is to me that I now need something so much deeper, more powerful, more personal than the law. I know your law is good, but I am flesh and powerless to obey. And so, Lord Jesus, I turn away from the law to you. You are my only hope. I turn away from my own resources and I bank on your blood and righteousness for acceptance and on your help for holiness. I turn away from all earthly pleasures and take you and you alone as the all-satisfying joy of my life. I renounce Satan and all his ways and all his works. I repent of all my sins that I know and those you know and I don't. And, O Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on me and open the eyes of my heart to see you as you really are in all your surpassing beauty. I pray that you would display your glory to me in the gospel. What I see and know of you now, I embrace with all my heart. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord and my treasure. And I ask that you 
will dwell mightily in me and make yourself the victor in my life so that when I love my brothers and my enemies, as I intend to do with all my heart, the glory will go to you. So Jesus, get glory in our justification and get glory in our progressive sanctification and grant us liberty this week from the things that bind us and make us unworthy of you, I pray, through Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.